we got into the offices of HBO, Irving and I, and the people behind the desk said, we don't have any record of you guys here. And they lo- and then the producers came out who we were supposed to meet with, who were the line producers of the show. And they said, we don't know who these guys are. And then they all looked at each other and they, then they said the name together of the, not the assistant, but another person who was a development person who worked for Bob. They yeah. said her name with a kind of like a us, eye-rolling kind of, it was so-and-so, and she didn't tell us, okay, come in. So we pitched it to them. They didn't really like it. So we were like, what's going on? You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here with Larry Guterman. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Thanks for having me, Eric. Of course. So, got to start from the beginning. I assume you know you're in the you're born. You immediately come out and you start calling in the cameras and directing a movie on the delivery table, right? <laughs> I bet, yeah. Not yeah. exactly that easy, but the, yeah. the ten year overnight success thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, let's start from the beginning. Where are you from? Where were you born? So, I was born in Silver Spring, Maryland. My dad worked in the government, and um, when he was when I was about three and a half, he unfortunately passed away, lung cancer. And, and so we moved to Montreal, where my mother was from. And so she raised me till I was 10 and met uh, the man who became my stepdad and my dad, basically, who raised me. Uh, they got married a couple of years later, but basically he raised me and he was a big, also a big influence on my life. And uh, he was from, so my generation, interestingly, I was kind of an in-between generation and my father served in World War II in Burma, my, my birth father, and then my stepdad was in England during the Battle of Britain, during the Blitz of London, uh, and he was a, he had polio, so he couldn't serve, but he was a uh, re- reporter, so he reported on the German bombing raids uh, during wow. the war, hey. and so the big, big influence from both of them. And so, talk to me about, like, the your stepdad, so you, so you in Montreal, did, did your mom's whole family was there and everything, too, so you grow up around a lot of family? Yeah, so I had family there, and I had family in in Binghamton, New York, and Long Island, and I would visit them over the summers or during the holidays. Um, And so they were they sort of became the the community that uh, represented my birth dad and raised me and and conferred his memory on me and and stories about him and so forth. And then my stepdad, I grew up when my mom. So I'm sorry. So when my mom raised me in Montreal, we had family from her side there as well. And, um, yeah, and that was, uh, you know, that was interesting growing up with that, a dad, a single, an only child with my mom was a bookkeeper. So she wasn't, um, a wealthy person by any means. Uh, and you know, she was just trying to make ends meet and, and, and raise a boy. And so on that note, uh, as a kid, what were you into? Like where, you know, three and a half Uh, to Canada, like what were your interests? What were you asking about as a kid? Yeah, from early on, I remember drawing. I remember my uncle in one of my uncles in New York gave me a little flip book with cards of a rabbit jumping out of a hat, a little animation there. And then I saw a movie when I was, I want to say, maybe nine or eight was Planet of the Apes with Charlton Heston, the original, and just absolutely mesmerized by that. I might have seen a couple of movies prior to that, but that was the one that made the biggest impression. 
were you that I, I want to do that? Is that what happened? Like, you're like, I want to make things like this? So I did the animation. I watched the movie. I started doing... My grandfather gave me a Super 8 camera, his old Super 8 camera. I started making little both animated and live-action movies as a kid and just loved it. But I never thought it would be a career. Like, it never even occurred to me back then yeah. the way it is now where you have a film school on every corner. Yeah. Um, it never occurred to me that that was something you could do. So I never... I just did it as a hobby and made little short films and made, I actually, there was in, and when we moved to Toronto, when I was 12, there was a, Toronto had Kodak, had a Kodak laboratory where they developed film for all of Canada. And there was a little kiosk across the street from our apartment building where you could go and give them the film and then you would get it a week later. And th that hut is still there. It's a burned out shell of a hut. It's still sitting there in that lot. Nobody uses it. It's empty, but. It was uh, it was a, a totem. It was a symbol of, uh, uh, you know, the ability to, to kind of be transported to another place by, by making that film and getting it back. And you would put it up on the projector and watch it. And, you know, yeah. it was amazing. We actually, when I was in 12th grade, we made a, a, a film at my building. It was a 12-story building where there was a fight, a kind of a James Bond little, little short. And we had a fight on the rooftop. And we had someone punched over the 12 story building and we built a full size dummy and we tossed it over the roof, over the roof down. And of course we were kids, we were 17 years old. We didn't think like that might be a problem for the neighborhood, especially it was a major intersection. So a woman came running in her heels and her business suit over to us. And we were on the bottom kind of laughing and we were ready to do the second take with the camera on the bottom. And uh, she said, oh my God, I, you stopped half the traffic on Shepard and Bathurst. You know, you, you <laughs> we thought it was a real person falling off the 12 story building. So that was the, that was, I'm sure that story is, isn't unique of, of young filmmakers trying to step out without permits. Oh, you got to do it. And so I'm curious, yeah. like 12th grades, you're like, you know, ready to graduate. You're still making films at that point. Were you thinking this might be a career? Were you still like, this is fun. Now I'm going to go be a bookkeeper. What, what was the thought? Right. So my freshman year, I went to MIT and I thought I was going to do physics or engineering or something. Exciting. Like you, you obviously were passionate about filmmaking. Why physics or engineering? Where that, how that get installed? So I, so my dad, my, my birth dad was a mathematician statistician, mathematician. My family on my father's side were very academic. My my uncle had a PhD in classics from Harvard from the 1930s. And I had another uncle who was probably the first ever editor of the Harvard Law Review with Jewish in the 1930s. And so there was a big academic cut in there. And, and, and my grandfather, their father, was the, the chief rabbi in Spren, Pennsylvania for like 60 years. Wow. There was this sort of thing about education, and it was and it was not considered. And and on and on the Canada side, on my mother's side, you went. I went to a Jewish day school, and you know, you education and pressure to succeed in whether you were a scientist or a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. The idea of doing film was unheard of back yeah. then. I mean, it was inconceivable that you would just try to make movies. That was not even in the in the like mindset. So so I did it as a hobby. And I went my, my, I, I transferred after my freshman year to Harvard. I majored in physics, but I, during the summers, I went to Sheridan College, which is like the Cal Arts of Canada, where they teach, where I took free summer international summer school of character animation. So Disney style hand drawn yeah. animation. So on that note, because, I get, so it sounds like somewhere it was, were you doing that just because you thought it was a cool side hobby or did you still, like, there was somewhere in there that seemed like you were yeah. trying to pursue it? No, it was a side hobby and I just loved wow. doing it. 
in fact, at, the, at that time, which would have been the summer of 83, 84, 85, the animation is, industry was completely in the doldrums. That Disney was looked like it was going to, like, it, the, the movies they were making, the, the old, what they call the nine old men generation of Disney animators, which were the people who did Snow White, they were all old or, or had passed away, and the new generation hadn't been trained, and they were just starting to train them in, in this art form. It was before computer animation. And so there was no sense that you could make a living anyway in, in animation at all back then. That didn't happen until later when the regime from Paramount with uh, Michael Eisner and, and Jeffrey Katzenberg came into Disney, took over, and then they made, I think it was a great mouse detective in 86, but it was really Little Mermaid in 89, and then Beauty and the Beast, it resurrected their fortunes, and I was already out of college by then. So it was, it was the timing wasn't, so that didn't even occur to me to do that. And, and, yeah. and, but my senior year at Harvard, I took a class in personal documentary filmmaking, but I made, a, and I took it with a, a really great professor named Ross McElwee. He made an amazing documentary called Sherman's March. I think it won the Oscar or Sundance or something. Anyway, in the second semester of that class, I made a fiction film. Like kind of a psychological thriller, yeah. even though that wasn't on, on the menu of <laughs> what to do. <laughs> and I just completely, and I was taking quantum mechanics and statistical mechanics and computer programming for computer graphics and artificial intelligence and all this stuff I was taking. But I took that class my senior year, my last semester, and I was fell totally in love with directing and making films again. Yeah. And that's that summer, so that spring, I met with, and I'm sure it's still the case, all of the Wall Street firms would come to colleges to interview yeah. people. And I met I met with, at the time, it was Solomon Brothers, which was this yeah. rival to Goldman Sachs at the time. And I met with uh, to be a quantitative analyst at their fund. And um, uh, not their fund, but at their firm. Yeah. And I went to New York for a day uh, from 7 to 7 at night, 12 interviews, interviews during lunch, asking me questions about complex analysis and all this stuff. And at the end of it, I remember thinking, I can't do this. Like, this is insane. <laughs> and, and, and at the same time, I had seen an, an advertisement in a magazine called Computer Pictures with a picture of people at Pacific Data Images, PDI, which was a computer graphics company in Sunnyvale, California, yeah. where they were all wearing, they were all wearing like t-shirts and shorts and sneakers. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta get an internship there. And I got an internship there. I think I made like 10 bucks an hour. I do get it. Wait, uh, wait, get it. So I, so I, so I sent them, a, it would have been a letter back then. Yeah. Uh, from not email. Um, and I applied. I sent my res, you know, yeah. whatever resume I had. Uh, uh, and, um, then I met with them yeah. up in Sunnyvale. And then I, um, and they, and they hired me just for the summer. Yeah. It was just an internship, but I was an assistant animator, which meant I did, it was the computer. It was the, the first generation of computer graphics was about 1980. And this uh -huh. was sort of the second wave. Yeah. And at night when I was there, I was working flying logos. So, you know, like, K-Ron TV station flying yeah. at, at the camera. That's what they was their bread and butter. And so yeah. I was working on that digiti digitizing logos. And then at night they had an animation system and I made a little character animated short. This would have been 87, which was, you know, eight years before Toy Story came out. And yeah. it was, and I made this little short and in order to do the animation, you had to write the script. So you didn't have a user interface like you've had for the last 25 years. You just yeah. had to actually almost write the pseudocode to be able to do it. And so I did that. I made a little short. I moved down to LA. I got an internship for no money as a script reader for Silver Pictures, Joel Silver's company. And they were making Die Hard at the time. And I got to go and I moved down to LA. I stayed at a friend's house in there. It took me, it took me a couple of months to get that. 
And then I got that internship. And then I, one day they were shooting a scene from Die Hard and I went to the craft service truck. And uh, there was William Atherton, who's the redheaded reporter, the, ba- yes. the mean guy in Die Hard, if you remember. Yep. And they were making this movie. And of course, nobody knew that movie was going to be a hit. But, um, but, and then I got a job doing some computer, computer graphics. And then I got a job about eight months later, uh, working as a development junior development executive for a producer at Columbia Pictures named Melinda Jason. So I did so that for- back, How did you afford, uh, you said you stayed with a friend, but literally no pay. Like how did you afford to live working for free in Hollywood? So the free part was, was about two and a half months. And I had some money saved up from the internship I did over the summer. Yeah. And I was paying, I don't know, 300 bucks a month for a room in someone's house. Yeah. And, but then I did need to get a job and I was hustling and I got a computer graphics job and that started to pay me. And in fact, one of the people who didn't take me under his wing, but he was very nice, was a gentleman named Joe Letary at this small computer animation company in LA, who later became the Joe Letary who won the Oscar for Lord of the Rings and Avatar. He's the head of the Weta in New Zealand. Got it. The nicest guy, nicest guy you'll ever meet. He's the guy that I remember being super nice to a young kid who was yeah. who was just starting out. But anyway, so that's how I afforded to live. And then I got the job as the development person. Mm-hmm. And I had two two other roommates. And that's where I got to learn how at least Hollywood at the time worked. It was not the Hollywood of today. It was yeah. uh, the Hollywood of, of, and it was not the Hollywood of the old days. It was sort of in, in between late 80s or the late 80s Hollywood, which was still a place where there was no HR where bosses yelled at their, had made them do insane things. And I have stories, stories from that that are, um, you know, funny and, and crazy and would never happen today. I would say it wasn't uh-huh. one that you feel comfortable sharing. Got to, you're going to throw that out there. We got to hear what. <laughs> well, uh, okay. I can, I can share that. Well, I can share two things. One is I used to hide in the bathroom some for 10 minutes because of the sheer pressure of like, the, the, the bombardment of stuff that had to, had to get done, and I was just starting out learning it. The other was very funny and sort of something you might see on a Larry David episode, which was one of the people I worked for had a very famous writer client. This person was a manager and producer. And every Monday morning, the producer would have me come in, her assistant, and the person who ran the management company, and give us go through her list, her very kind of long list of things to the week. And one morning, her very famous writer client called up while we were in the meeting. And so she put him on speakerphone, but she put it on mute. And as he was talking, and this was, and what he was talking about was getting, was arguing with the Writers Guild about getting first position credit on a famous movie that later went on to win the Oscar and her best picture. I'm not going to say what movie because they don't want to identify. But, and he was known for being a person who could just blow the aid and talk and, and, and go on. On and on. So she put it on mute and she kept the meeting going with me and the three other people in the room while that voice was <laughs> was booming into the office. And then, I don't know, and I was thinking, okay, I'm taking notes. Wait, when is he going to expect a response? Okay, I'm taking more notes. Wait, I'm worried. I'm all anxious that he's going to expect a response. Ten minutes in, I swear to God, she somehow had this uncanny ability to know when he was going to pause and she paused, put put it on mute and said, so-and-so, I couldn't agree with you more. And she put it back on you and kept the meeting going and he just kept talking into the rest of it. Actually, later in the meeting she actually went over and took a call on a different phone while he was still talking into the room so that's kind of a 
Uh, that's kind of a somewhat benign, funny story example that's of pretty funny you might see. So anyway, but but w- one of the things I learned was sort of how the system worked. And the thing that happened there, Eric, was, and this is to get to your earlier question of what kind of made me take that left turn from science and so forth into filmmaking, was I used to get VHS tapes of student films across my desk because I was the development person. So it was my job to read scripts, find scripts, go to the agencies, yeah. see if there was something my boss would want to produce. And then it was also to look at student films and see who the up-and-coming filmmakers were. And back then, there was no internet, there was no YouTube, so that's the only way you, that we were the kind of the gatekeepers. So I would see these films, and a lot of them were very good. And at a certain point, I thought, wait a second, I don't want to be looking at the films and servicing the other films. I actually want to make these. Yeah. And that's when I applied. I went back to USC, applied to USC Film School and, and decided to go back to film school. So that, that was sort of the, the tipping point. And so when you went back and went to film school, got through that, coming out of that, was it like, then you just got your job, you're ready to go, you're a filmmaker now? Like, how, how did it get from there? Yeah, no, that's not, that's uh, a great question. You know, there are a lot of different areas. You can do sound, you can do editing, you can do, yeah. you know, you can act, you can be an actor, you can be a writer, you can be a director, you can be work on the crew, you can be a director of photography, whatever. I, I was keen on directing. But one of the things that was useful was that I had a sense of what awaited me on the other side when I graduated. <laughs> And, and I, why, uh, why, what was it about directing that attracted you? Just the art. It's my favorite art form. I mean, just making the film, bringing it to light, the actual <laughs> process of making it, the editing of it, and then screening it. And if it works, there's nothing better than seeing people react the way yeah. you're hoping they'll react, whether they, whether it's funny or scary or, yeah. or you know, me- meaningful or metaphysical or poetic or whatever. Whatever that, whatever you're intending, that was one of the great things about USC. And George Lucas talked about this, about his favorite course, which was called 290, which was the intro course where back then you made five Super 8 films over 15 weeks. Uh-huh. You prepped them, you shot them, you cut them, and then you would show them to everyone in the class. And the whole evaluation was not, is this any good? The evaluation was, does this achieve what the filmmaker intended? Yeah. And if they didn't get what you intended and, and what you were trying to convey and communicate, you failed. Wow. Meaning you didn't achieve the goal. If, if what they absorbed from what you showed demonstrated that what uh, what we try to convey was communicated, then it was a success, regardless of the beam or the pop, whatever. So that was a great learning experience because it really threw you right into the process immediately. So then later, there were steps to at USC, and they still have this. It's called, it was 480 then. It's called, I think it's 546 now, which is a workshop project. Which you go through all the coursework, cinematography, editing, acting classes. Had an amazing feature, Nina Foch, who was the mother in Ten Commandments, and she's a legendary acting teacher. She was great. Um, a, a number of amazing professors, Professor Frank Danielle, who who taught screenwriting, who was brilliant. Anyway, so you'd go through all the coursework, you'd make, you'd do exercises in filmmaking, and then there was this sort of capstone pinnacle project, which only five people a semester got selected to do. So there'd be about 70 submissions, 15 narrowed down, and then five would get selected. I was not selected. I was one of the 15. And that led me to make, and you know, the competition was fierce because people are really talented. So that led me to make a thesis film, which you could also make. And, but prior to that, Bob Zemeckis, the director of Back to the Future, Ride the Rabbit, he taught for a semester at USC when I was there. Now, he was teaching the writers and directors of that workshop for it, but I was an editor of one of those shorts. And 
we went into dailies every week and he would speak. And so towards the end of the semester, one of the folks who was a director on one of those shorts said, hey, Bob is allowing us to come in and pitch Tales from the Crypt episodes. He was producing that show for HBO <laughs> with um, Walter Hill and Richard and uh, right, Richard Donner and Joel Silver. And so the last, this was a kind of an interesting story. So the last day of classes, I was at the equipment equipment room and Bob Zemeckis was in a gigantic black black window tinted Mercedes pulling out of the loading dock, which is the area there at USC Film School back then where, where the stages were. And I saw him out of the corner of my eye and something prompted me to run over to him. And I ran over to him and I knocked at his window and he lowered the window, you know, and said, yeah, and said, hey, you know, Professor Zemeckis, I'm, you know, a student in your, in the, I've come to dailies and I'm an editor and I heard that you're listening to pitches. You're taking pitches for Tales from the Crypt for the writers and directed. Would it be okay if I came in and pitched? He said, um, okay, I call my assistant so-and-so and just, just don't tell everybody. He raised the window and he took off. I went back to my writing partner, Irving Belichash, who is now professor of of screenwriting at USC. And we were writing together. We started writing together. We went to a comic book store downtown near USC. Yeah. We, we looked at every Tale from the Crypt comic you could find. And we found a single panel in each comic that was interesting because we wanted to do something new. And we came up with six pitches yeah. to pitch to him. We also wrote a script um, together to show, you know, and show, showing that we could write together. And we spent three months trying to call that assistant to get a meeting all summer. And every week she said, yeah, I'm sorry, he's really busy. Call back, you know, can you call back next week? And she did it for, I don't know, 13 weeks, whatever the whole summer was. And at the end of the summer, Irving's wife who worked in marketing at a firm, uh, an engineering firm said, listen, this is what you're going to do, Larry. This time when you call him, do not get off the phone. If she says, can you call back next week? Say, I'm sorry, I really can't. I'm busy. And she says, can you call back the following and say, I'm sorry, I'm going out of town. I'm not going to be able to. And I was like, oh my God, I can't do that. That's impossible. And uh, so sure enough, we called her and she said, we can't call back next week. I said, I'm, it was so hard for me. I said, I'm sorry, I can't next week. What about the one after I said, I really can't. I'm going to be out of town. She said, oh, you guys are persistent. Just sit tight. And she hung up and she called back in half an hour and she said, okay, you got a meeting like in two weeks or whatever it was. We went to Universal. We were still in film school. We went to Universal. We met with him at his bungalow on the lot. We started to pitch him one idea. He's like, that's pretty good. And then we pitched him a second idea. And during that second idea, he started to speak and say, wait, what if you, well, what if you did this? Well, what if you did that? And I was like, wait a second. I pulled out my notepad and started writing notes. And then he got up and started pacing and spinning ideas. And he came up with a brilliant idea for the, to, to make it like a whole other level better. Yeah. And then at the end of it, he said, all right, guys, this is great. Uh, I, we pitched him the others, which we liked. And he said, but this, that one is great. I'm going to direct that as part of an anthology, a three-part anthology. I'm going to do one. Walter Hill is going to do one. And Richard Donner is going to do one. And you'll hear from us. We, we wow. couldn't believe it. Could not believe it. We were in film school. Anyway, but it was, that wasn't the end of the story because then we were supposed to go meet with HBO. And the meeting kept getting postponed. And finally, we had the meeting. And we got into the offices of HBO, Irving and I. And the people behind the desk said... We don't have any record of you guys here. And they look, and then the producers came out who we were supposed to meet with, who were the line producers of the show. And they said, we don't know who these guys are. And then they all looked at each other and they, then they said the name together of the, not the assistant, but another person who was a development person who worked for Bob. They yeah. said her name with a kind of like a, uh, eye rolling kind of, it was so and so. And she didn't tell us, okay, come in. So we pitched it to them. They didn't really like it. So we were like, what's going on? Well, Bob Zemeckis wants to make it. I don't understand. Like, 
he's he's the exact producer of the show and he's going to direct it. Like, yeah. So it took another three months to kind of get through that. And finally, Bob pushed it through. And then finally, we went to meet with him. So we did a draft. And then we went to meet with Bob, who had read the draft. And he was, so this is funny. He was directing <laughs> Death Becomes Her. Do you remember? Um, I don't remember. Do you remember, do you remember uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Bruce Willis and Meryl Streep and Moldy oh. Hahn in the oh. movie. Bruce Willis is a plastic surgeon. And they're looking for the fountain of youth. And Isabella Rossellini has a magic potion to make them infinitely young. Yeah. So they're shooting this movie in a restaurant in Beverly Hills on Dayton Way. And we come in and there's Meryl Streep, <laughs> Bruce Willis, and Bob Zemeckis. And they're about 30 yards away from us. And we're behind where the, the video village is. And someone whispers into Zemeckis. There's like 300 people on the set. And whispers to, and we're in film school. And he whispers to Zemeckis. And Zemeckis kind of looks over at us and goes, "Hey guys!" And all the whole crew, everybody turned around and looked at us. And we were like, "The air was caught of headlights." <laughs> and um, and then we met with him, and he uh, he liked the script, and he had notes, and we took got the notes. Uh, we got to be, I mean, it was great. And then um, and then we rewrote it eventually. And then we did the rewrite. They liked the rewrite, and they were going to do it. And then Zemeckis got busy, and he got busy with a little project called Forrest Gump. And he never, he never did the anthology. Yeah, it was never revisited. It did get us work. Now we later got work because we gave the script, which is about a freak show in the 1890s. We yeah. gave the script to and about an evil, tyrannical master of the freak show who has a <laughs> who has a brother who yells at him. Who it turns out to be. The second he was a con- conjoined twin, and it turns out to be the second head on his head. But he wears a hat all the time, yes. a top hat, and he's always hearing voices in his head. And you just think it's voices, but it's actually the other head yelling at him. Because when he was young, he cut off the rest of his body, but he couldn't. He didn't want to c- sever the head off because it would have damaged his own head. Yeah. So he has this other head on his head. So it was a tales from the crypt type thing that we made up. Yeah. And it turns out, and I only someone said this to me recently. I couldn't believe I didn't catch this, but we then got a job writing a sequel of Halloween 6 for Bob Weinstein at Dimension Films because he loved that script and it never occurred to me in all those years and someone brought up well obviously he loved it because of his brother Harvey (laughs) (laughs) who basically was the boss of the of the relationship and I was like oh my god that is exactly right and it did not even occur to us yeah when we gave it to him Anyway, bottom line, I've heard it. Anyway, so what's interesting is... Real quick, how long was that, like, from the knock on the window to the point where they're like, we're not going to make this? Like, how long was that whole saga for you? Timeline. A year. A year. And you didn't end up with any payment from any of it, right? We got, like, $8,000 minus agent fees. And, you know, it was, like, the minimum for HBO in 1992 or whenever Oh, so they did buy the script. They just didn't make it but they bought it they didn't make it yeah so that was my first job yeah and then what's interesting the biggest the biggest thing that came out of this was that Zemeckis liked what we did and when Irving and I made our thesis films he gave us a letter of recommendation and I took that letter and I got I shot on 35 millimeter and I got my thesis film and I got free equipment and reduced equipment I used that letter (laughs) milked it like to the hilt and it was useful I mean uh, equipment houses and so forth they loved that stuff and uh, I went back and I used them again later because I'm so grateful. And actually, when I made the thesis, the thing that allowed me to have get any career at all in filmmaking was the thesis stone. And that was, I don't know if you want to hear that story, but that's maybe a more, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> that was, so I made the thesis 
thesis film. Yeah. So before I made the thesis film, I met with a gentleman who I had, was another development exec who I had worked with when I was working for the original producer, who was the one with the writer, who she, you know, the story I told earlier. Yeah. And he said he was now working for Jerry Brock Island. Uh-huh. And I met with him and said, I'm making this thesis film. I just want to get your take on feedback. He said, listen, when you make your film, I see these films all the time. You better make something that's like a blowtorch under my face or I'm not going to notice it. Yeah. And uh, it, it, or the other analogy was you're on a frozen lake. You better punch through the ice, yep. basically, yep. All, all while all the others are like trying to scramble. I'm like, okay. I get it. So I made the thesis film, shot it on 35. Uh, it was a, it was a, a sort of a, a Twilight Zone-ish kind of thing about a, uh, and I wrote this in Urban. It was about, um, called Headless. It was about an old couple in the Arizona desert selling shrunken heads out of their basement in the back of comic books. And an overzealous anthropologist from UCLA who goes to investigate them just as they run out of heads and need to fill their back orders. So okay. that was it. That, so it was, like, it was like a little, uh, Edgar Allan, you know, like a, a little short story yep. uh, with a twist. Yeah. So um, when that when that film was finished, and it took me, I had to reshoot the opening. So I shot the whole movie, I edited it, and I was like, the opening isn't working. The rest of it was working, but the opening wasn't working. And I spent eight months thinking about a new opening. And I wrote a couple, and I finally selected one, and it was eight minutes, the first eight pages of a 30-page script. <laughs> and I went back for four days, and I reshot a new opening. And by the way, my film professor, who was on my thesis committee, said to me in the middle of that, don't bother, it's good enough. And because he said it's good enough, I was like, not enough. Yeah, no. I have to I have to bother. So I just reshot it. When the film was done and I had met my fiance my my girlfriend who became a fiance became my wife, Sarah, she helped me write fourteen hundred invitations by hand to the entire Hollywood creative directory, which has the list of all the producers and productive yeah. companies back then which is in a book that wasn't online. Yeah. And we sent out fourteen hundred invitations. About eighteen people came from those four days to the USC screening. Of those people, there was someone from MTV. I almost did a Foo Fighters video, but I didn't get it. And there were some other things, uh, some other folks that met. Mostly I got, of the people that showed up, one guy, Glenn Williamson, who I had met as a production assistant who used to work at Castle Rock when I first moved to LA. Mm -hmm. Seven years later, or whatever it was, six years later, whatever it was, was now a junior development executive at the newly formed DreamWorks studio. Nice. And he said, can you give me a film? And I said, okay. And I gave him my 35 millimeter print. Yeah. And he said, I'm going to get Walter Parks, who was then the president of the newly formed DreamWorks. It was in 1995. He just announced it like a few months yeah. earlier to watch your film. And every week I would call him and every week he'd say, yeah, he blew it off. He blew it off. I swear to God, for three months, he blew it off. And then he said to me in December, towards the holidays, Glenn called me up and said, can you send me a VHS tape? Now you have to understand the difference between 35 millimeter print and VHS tape is the difference between like an 8K TV and an old 240 YouTube video yeah. or something. Like I'm like, well, and you know, it's a film. It's a film. He's like, just send me the, the darn tape. They sent it to him. A week later, I get a call. He said, bad news and good news. The bad news is that Walter blew your film off again. The good news is I gave the tape to Steven Spielberg. Yeah. He liked it and he said he thought you had a good eye and he'd like to meet. Those were his exact words. <laughs> How's that for a I'm true. I was, yeah. I was like, holy cow. <laughs> Believe it. I mean, Jaws, Jaws was one of my, you know, yeah. Jaws and Doctor Strange Love are my two favorite films. So I was like, oh shit. Yeah. So I went in. I didn't meet with him right away. They were they were just starting DreamWorks Interactive, making the Goosebumps CD-ROM game. There was uh-huh. about twenty five minutes of live action footage. It ended up being with Jeff Goldblum and Isabella Russell and me. And I got the job. I got hired. Spielberg came by for casting, and he came by a couple times when I was in the editing room editing. In fact, it couldn't have been nicer. And he loved. I was told by the CEO of DreamWorks Interactive, he loved the result. And and as 
as a result, I then got hired to do, I was going to actually, I, I met with an executive at Dreamworks who said, come in and we'll, Stephen wants to see if you can do Small Soldiers for a price. Remember that movie? Yep. It ended up being Joe Dante who directed it. It was a live action CGI combo with soldiers that come, toy soldiers that come to life. Yep. And I started to work on a presentation with Jason Hobbs, it was the executive. And then I got a call saying, no, 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 Jeffrey Katzenberg heard about your short and heard that Steven likes it and wants you in animation. And uh, he, he met with me and he said, there are three projects I want you to look at. One is El Road, Road to El Dorado, which was animated, yeah. classical animation. The second was this little book I could not make heads or tails of at all from the book. And it was called Shrek. <laughs> and the third one was an ant that wants to be an individual and Katzenberg had already talked with Woody Allen about doing the voice. And I'm like, holy shit, that's a great idea for a movie. I said, yes, did that one. And, and so I ended up working on ants and directing about a third of the film and the third, there were three directors on it. I, I ended up weaving PDI to, to do another film. So I have directed by sequences on the movie, but I did like the battle with the termites and the march to battle yep. and all these sequences of that film directed. And you end, you end up slicing it vertically and horizontally. So you end up like directing the voice actors. So I directed Woody Allen a couple of times and I got him to deliver a couple of lines that were funnier than his original delivery. And I was like, holy cow. I got like a comic <laughs> genius of the 20th century that unfortunately his his legacy is a bit tarnished, but basically yeah. he's so brilliant at the get him to deliver something that ended up everyone in the booth laughed at after I directed him. Yeah. That was pretty amazing. <laughs> That's cute. So that, and then off of that, off of doing Ants, I was going to direct, I got hired to direct Curious George, the live action oh. CGI version for Imagine and Universal. That didn't go when they got the Grinch and they were going to spend the money on that and Jim Carrey and Ron Howard directing it or me and the monkey that summer. So that version of the movie didn't go. But then I got the movie Cats and Dogs by Warner Brothers. Yep. And that was a, a successful film. At the time, I actually also met on this movie, Mr. Megorian's Wonder Emporium, and got offered to direct that as well, which was going to be at the time with Drew Barrymore. She wanted Joe to Bill Murray about it, and then I ended up doing Cats and Dogs, and then that movie got made with Natalie Portman and others, but, yeah. but, and, and that, that was sort of the genesis of it. So it's, it's a, I'd like to tell people, you know, if you go to medical school, there's sort of a path. You do well enough, you can be a neurosurgeon. You do not as well in medical school, you can be a, I don't know, an anesthesiologist, whatever, whatever the steps are, they're very clear. Yeah. It's a very clear path. You go to business school, you can go up to BC, you can go private equity, you can go into building a business, startup, innovation. That's also, by the way, starting a, starting a startup is, uh, is an unknown, very, very yeah. unknown path. But anyway, but in the film business, it's just, I think the main takeaway that I got from this is if you want to direct movies, you have to direct movies, basically. And that's the catch 22. And you have to figure out how to do it and make it. One of the things I said to myself when I made my thesis film was, I don't want people to have to suspend their disbelief for it being a student film. I want it on the level of crap to yep. be punch above its weight. Yep. Um, because I want them to just see the filmmaking for what it is, not like see all the flaws for it that, that usually accompany something that's less than professional. Part so that sense. was, yeah, uh, so that, that was the path on direct. Excellent. And so post Cats and Dog, did you, were you able to continue to make a living at it? Like what, how did that play out after that? Yeah. So that was uh, a successful movie. So and I got paid, you know, that was my first, I got paid on ants. I got paid. So I was making a living. We bought a house in 1999 yeah. off of ants and, and George. And then by the time I did Cats and Dogs, I had a decent salary and I had visuals and I had, uh, the residuals were, were, were a wonderful thing. And the unions, I can't thank the unions enough from the 1930s for allowing people, it's, it's feast and famine in Hollywood. So, you know, yeah. 
you're working for a while, then you're not working for five years, and then you're working again. And so yeah. that's really important for people to be able to survive. And then I did that. And then I developed several projects. I developed a project in Miramax right after 9-11 called Artemis Fowl. I, I uh, did artwork, developed a script for that based on a kid's book. I have a funny Harvey Weinstein story, but I'm not going to have too much time. And then I developed a project for New Regency, developed a project for Paramount, a fantastic script uh, for Nickelodeon, live action. They were for all live action movies. So I'm getting paid bits and pieces in that. Then I did another movie. I was brought in to meet on Elf, and the studio decided, yes, let's hire Larry. And I went to meet, and I was supposed to meet with the studio exec and the manager, uh, Will Farrell, who was a great guy. Yeah, but the manager and the studio weren't there, and I met with him, and then afterwards they said, oh, we're really sorry, but he had ideas in mind. I had a whole pitch for the movie that the studio signed off on, and I pitched it to him. Again, he's a great guy. I wanted to get him in Cats and Dog, by the way, prior to this. I tried to get him and Julia Louis-Dreyfus in it uh, originally, and um, it wasn't the take that he had in mind and that he was thinking about, and so it wasn't me. And then they went through four other directors, and it wasn't them. And eventually, they went with John Favreau, who was great, and uh, made the movie. And you sort of understand that he had this partner in Adam McKay, who's brilliant, you know, and made the big short and all those films subsequently. But in Talladega Nights with him and everything, you understand like they had, these guys had a yeah had a great partnership. So New Line felt so bad that they came back to me seven months later and they said come to lunch we want to offer you this movie and it was the sequel to the mask and i thought oh it's rick and cherry the mask a great movie i love that movie and it turned out no it wasn't in cherry it was something else and i thought okay the only way i'm going to do this movie is if it's pg-13 number one there was a script and number two it's not marketed as a sequel to the mask it's some other spin-off you know how like today with yeah. the marvel movies yeah. They're not sequels, but they're like some other, you know, and now there's a TV show with Captain Marvel or whatever, yeah. whatever. And, and they're sort of different in the same universe, but they're, they're, they're not uh, meant to be a direct line because they said, yeah. you can't compete with, with that movie. Right. So they said, absolutely. Pete and the that is not going to be, you know, presented as a sequel. Yeah. And we made the movie and during post, they said, oh, we're changing the rating to Pete And I'm like, no, you can't do that. It's the entire movie is works because of the counterpoint between the humor, the yeah. layer of ironic humor against the sort of uh, over-the-top cartoon-style uh, Joe's influence filmmaking. And they're like, no, 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 it's for kids. I'm like, no, it won't work for kids. It's not going to work only in tent. You can't. They said, yeah. So they won. Yeah. So they put the movie out. It didn't work. Right. That That's what happens when you're playing in the yeah. leads, you know? You, yeah. you roll with the punches and you move on. So I moved on. That one didn't work. The first one was a big hit. That's about what made $200 million. It was made a $50 million in profit for the studio. They made it, eventually made a sequel. After the Son of the Mask, they went off and did other film stuff. Did some television. Produced a movie. I called Remember, or as exec producer on a movie called Remember with, from, uh, and blanking, Martin Landau and Christopher Plummer and won a bunch of Canadian Screen Academy Awards. But during that time, I started having some hearing issues from a loud party as that my freshman year. By the way, I don't know how much time we have left. Like I 10 minutes per hip, Jackman. We're good. Okay. So I had been at a very loud party my freshman year and it was so loud I had learning my ears for a week afterwards and I went to get checked and I had a little bit of loss. Not. Over the years, it deteriorated. So by that point, it was getting bad enough that I was having trouble, and I had an it by my on the phone. And then, so I thought, why don't we just? I don't understand. You have these, and I've got one here. This is an eight thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I said, why aren't we just for phone calls? Why aren't we just taking the functionality of that device and sticking it on the mini supercomputer? We're all all carrying around in our pocket. Yeah, that's much better. It's much better than, uh, or it's a better chip and wider bandwidth audio. And yes. so that was the sort of genesis of 
uh, Sonic 5, which is a tech startup. I started. Now, I was in prep on a movie, and we were going to make this animated feature at Relativity Films while I was kind of working on the side at night on the weekends on, on this tech startup idea with partners and, and people who came in to work for free and so forth. Yeah. And that studio went out of business. Relativity yeah. Films went out of business while this was gaining traction. And we found a CDO and then raised funds. And then by 2016, 2017, we had, by 2017, we had a product on the app store that when you were optimizing and, and, and I was all of a sudden switching from filmmaking to tech start, the world of tech startups. And yes. I was an older, an older co-founder, not like the 20 somethings who were <laughs> in the building at the time back then, they all had hipster dudes. And, you know, little best on it. I was like, okay, this is a different world than work. This is an entirely different universe than I grew up in. And, uh, but, but the thing snowballed and we started to get some traction and we got some investment and we got Apple. Apple loved what we were doing and they, they said, you guys are punching above the wave and you're doing great. We want you to feature at uh, the Worldwide Developer Conference. And then later they came back and said, we want you to be in our app and to feature in the fall product launch. Uh, uh, and that, so we're in the app. If you, t- if you go to the health kit app, yeah. uh, health app for Audiogram, there are three apps that are recommended to do your, your hearing tests and one of them is Sonic Cloud. And they, they featured us on Global Accessibility Awareness Day at one of four, four accessibility apps and Cook tweeted about it. So we had some, some real love from them. And then we found during COVID, crazily enough, that the remote work phenomenon created a business opportunity. And and by the way, I don't think of it like that. I think of it like this app worked for me. I tried yes. it. We built a prototype. I was able to understand on a call. I'm using it now to understand you, not my hearing aids. And and it's it's the science under the hood is fantastic and it's groundbreaking. And um and we've got several patents and so forth. But but what happened was during COVID, we found that employees at work were having trouble on Zoom calls and Teams calls and Google Meet calls. And companies were frantically trying to figure what can they do to help their employees understand on these calls better. Yeah. And turns out Sonic Sonic Cloud was a great solution for them. And so now uh, we're helping people at work and and we're helping them at home as well, but we're largely the the bulk of the business is helping folks at work. And one of the sort of dreams of mine is to also eventually bring this back into the the world of content and entertainment and films and TV and movies because it's been uh, there's there's real chance there. We have we actually have a very nice letter of support from Ron Howard and and, and JJ Abrams Maybe. for the an initiative that we would like to eventually do, which which will involve allowing people in movie theaters that at home to be able to basically enjoy people who have hearing loss to enjoy uh, content, whether movies or TV, the way the filmmaker originally intended. You know, when they spent four weeks executing the film for perfect quote-unquote year, right? This would allow them to, to someone with hearing loss, to kind of hopefully compensate for that and experience it the way it's intended. So, um, yeah. So we're, we're working with uh, some technology integration with some big uh, uh, CD manufacturers and uh, transportation companies, uh, auto companies, and so forth. And we, we do, and we, and we also work with um, companies like Citibank and PMC Bank and uh, Boeing and so forth and Sony but for their employees to be able to use Sonic Cloud to yep. communicate uh, during the day. So that, that's been very gratifying as well. Quite a pivot. So what, last two questions yeah. for you. Number one, what's next? You know, are you going to go back to directing too? Or are you going to focus on this and doing both? Like what's the thought? Well, right now, if there's, you know, there's good momentum with Sonic Cloud mm-hmm. and that's kind of, we kind of need to see that through. 
you know, ultimately the goal would be for the company to be integrated in such a way that it can run on its own and do things. It'd be wonderful to go back, you know, at some point at the right point, you know, and make films because I love doing it. Yeah. Uh, and it was my, it was my first love in terms of career. But this is really, you know, this is, this is what's, what's on tap right now and what's, and, and what's, um, giving me great satisfaction. You know, we did, uh, in December, we did what's called the Astro Access Flight, which is a parabolic zero gravity flight. The idea is this organization is designed to help people with disability get into space. Uh-huh. And among the people who were training on this flight, where you float through the arts that the plane does, um, were people who were paraplegic people, who uh, were missing wind people, who were blind people, who were deaf, and people with hearing loss. And so, um, and, and the founder of this um, organization, George Whitesides, is the former CEO of Virgin Galactic, Richard Branson's uh-huh. uh, spaceflight company. So the idea is to get people with disability to make uh, and de- deploy universal design principles into things like the space station now, the new space station that are going to be the yes. station that's going to be built by 2028, I think. So as a precursor to that, this exercise, this, this initiative. And um, so we had four people with hearing loss or free with hearing loss, one who was blind, use sonic cloud on one of these flights. It's 90 decibel background. They're floating in midair. They're receiving instructions through sonic cloud that they can understand and hear because they're using the technology to understand yeah. it. And so that was a really great group of concepts. <laughs> so the idea that, that we can disseminate the importance of accessibility and level the playing field, like there's no reason why somebody, you know, among the people who tested this was a NASA team leading engineer who works on the propulsion system for the Artemis yeah. flight that's going to the moon. She has hearing loss. That, there's no reason why you wouldn't have, it's not like 10 Air Force pilots going up anymore right. in, in three or four years. It's going to be everybody, yeah. right? So just like we have uh, ramps for people with wheelchairs on Earth, yeah. we need to make space accessible. And and in turn, that will hopefully trickle down on Earth as well to make things even more accessible. And I think it's like 33 years since the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I think, you know, the more the more that we can level the playing field and make uh, create equal opportunity for everybody, you know, the better. Amen. That's, that's, awesome. my, that's my little... My I like it. <laughs> the last question for you, and you kind of alluded to this in a few different points, but for someone just getting started to pursue their dreams, I mean, you had such an indirect path that's been pretty awesome. What would be your advice to someone that just wants to go after it and, you know, be, perform at the top level in whatever field they're trying to get into? In what, in whatever field? Yeah. 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 I think it's different for something like film. Tech, tech and film are somewhat related, but they're not, they're not the same. Um, and, and innovation in tech. Well, see, what do you think ties them together? What kind of action, what kind of advice that would tie success together? Yeah, I think persistence. I think vision of what you want to do and a drive and communicating that vision very clearly. Because look, if you communicate it, when I came out, I sent out letters to 150 film companies. I didn't hear back from one of them. You have to assume that the odds are against you and you just have to keep going. And I think the very fact that keeping going and not giving up will be noticed eventually by somebody. And then it's a question of, the, the old added opportunity plus preparation, right? <laughs> Nothing comes up. You better be ready and you better have done your homework and you better be ready because that opportunity may only come up once. I mean, look, look at my case, for example. Nobody gave me a job. Fieldbird saw my film. Yeah. And he and the reason nobody else gave me work when I had that film and I had a little bit of there was a little bit of interest was they were looking mostly to see if other people were going to give me work first. Yeah. They were going to be validated. Gilbert didn't need to be validated. He doesn't care. He just thinks, oh, there's some talent in this person. I'm going to do something about it. That's very rare. Now, if it had been 1997 or 1994, and they were not looking for 
And they were looking to hire someone cheap for that first uh, video, for that first uh, computer game. Yeah. So they knew they could, they could hire. I got paid, like I worked for eight months on that thing. I think I got like 15 grand or something. Good <laughs> all. But so, month, so. a quick statement. There's something to be said about the fact that you took those jobs. I mean, I see it yes. as an employer a lot of times. Like people are looking for just comparing base salaries now and taking the job that pays the most, even if it's an extra couple of grand and not necessarily thinking about how this plays into the future. Yeah. Well, certainly at the time, look, it's a different job market now it's a different world now i mean i'm sort of shocked at how things that the world of work has transformed but yeah. but you're right i think you have to kind of leverage the it's the deferred gratification right also if you want to succeed in the field you got to love the field and i don't yeah. care if it's film or tech or even finance like like you better love money if you if all you want to do is make a lot of money you better love the idea of making money if all you yeah. want to do is make a lot of money if you love the idea of making films and making people happy or working in the healthcare field where you serve people and you, you better love that. And people will see that. People will see that passion. And, you know, you'll occasionally run into people maybe who are jealous or cynical or bitter or negative, and you've got to kind of navigate that. But then you'll run into people who are inspired by what you're doing and will want to go along for the ride and be with you while you're doing it, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's sort of, um, yeah, in any path, I'd say persistence, vision, passion, like you say, willingness to forego the near-term reward for the longer term if, if you have if you have that that vision. So yeah, that would be my my biggest. Oh, the other, I'm sorry, there's one other piece of advice I would give, which is especially in a field that's highly highly competitive, whether it's film or whatever, be competent. If you're good at something and you're competent at it, and you're very good at it, and you're striving to be better at it, first of all, figure out how to be really good at it. And which means practice, practice. It can't be old, the famous uh, Nothing Bible book about 10,000 hours. There's no yeah. substitute for that. But if you know you're pretty good at it, convey confidence but humility. Yeah. Do not ever be arrogant. Yeah. And the reason is, especially if you're in a field that's very competitive, everybody around you is smart and they all have big egos. Yeah. Right. And just because you think you're great at it doesn't mean, you know, this is something you gain, gain perspective on this and you get older. And when you're young, is you think you're going to conquer the world. And if you do, and you don't think about this, if you can hold back on being and, and stay humble while being confident and being really good at what you do, there's nothing people who are senior to you love more yeah. than it's seeing humility in someone who's competent. That is a gold, you know, ticket, like from what's that movie? Charlie, and I think that I think that I don't. Yeah, I don't think that there's a, a better uh, from the from the perspective of the people hiring. You know, if you can do that, I, I don't know if that's true in all fields, but I think it's true in a lot of. Stuff. I couldn't agree more. Well, Larry, this has been awesome. Thank you for coming on Hawk Talk. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Eric. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.